an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't you know. I don't Wizard. I never have, and I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners. And I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, powered by FanDuel Sportsbook, the second in a continuing installment of preview podcasts. The Big Ten comes into focus today. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only Pain Insider. But before we kick things off in Big Ten country, I want to remind all of you, our loyal listeners, use the promo code BETTHEBOARD. Take advantage of all those sweat-free bets that FanDuel has working in your favor, whether it's chasing after baseball dreams, trying to get involved in NBA Summer League, or taking advantage of our man John Sheeran's odds to win Rookie of the Year in the National Basketball Association. There are so many ways to put your money to work for you, even before football season starts. Take advantage of your $1,000 sweat-free bet. Use the promo code BETTHEBOARD. And Payne, when we started to map out this Big Ten, we had no idea that there was going to be news-related content on top of everything else not to impact our preview but the conference footprint is expanding and you get to take shots at the west coast before we even get out of the gates you're such a college guy that i knew you would have to implement something that even hasn't started yet that probably will be irrelevant in five years onto this podcast people like to get your thoughts on newsworthy issues i have no thoughts it's very simple you got you got usc you got ucla Washington and Oregon won in, and they've been declined to this point. It's a wait and see. My understanding is they want Notre Dame. Let's see what transpires there. But in the grand scheme of things, we're all looking at a near-term 
two conference race here. But the reality is five years from now, it's just going to be the top 60 teams playing in their own league. So it's it's really irrelevant um, in the grand scheme of things. And it does not really matter. Just throw the games out there. Let's bet them and move on. I, I hate all of this kind of talk. Hey, it may make our life easier. If we have to do two conference preview, we pick the top six teams in each conference. Suddenly we're talking about 12 <laughs> teams we're previewing in two podcasts instead of five with about six to eight teams in each. So I'm looking I- about a glass half full for you and I. I think we're going to end up having to to break some of those conferences up. Probably, I, son, I don't think we're going to we're going to be able to slide by with six in a conference when there's <laughs> when there's twenty teams in each. We'll, we'll end up doing different. I, I think it does different divisions. You know, we talked obviously. about this at at dinner a little bit, but I do think some of the matchups are interesting. Obviously, you know, we see a glimpse of it in the Rose Bowl, but some of the stylistic differences from the West Coast teams to the Big Ten teams will be fun to see a little bit more on a on a routine basis. Yeah, it was funny, uh, and not to go off on a tangent, we'll obviously get into the games as we have tons of ground to cover in the Big Ten East and the Big Ten West. Had a discussion uh, with uh, my better half here talking about, well, I have no interest now in going on to Big Ten road games. Payne, I had a looker in the eye and go, uh, we've been together five plus years. You've never gone on the road for a Pac-12 road game to the Palouse or Seattle, so I don't want to hear that you're suddenly planning a trip to Lincoln or Iowa City five years down the road. I know you're getting older but I was actually in the car for that discussion. And it's a good thing you weren't looking her in the eyes because you were driving. Well, that, I got to try and keep you safe. You are the man that keeps this podcast going. So they can do with a different host. They can't do with a different analyst. All right, my friend. Right. we Lead got us to the promised land here because there's a lot of ground to cover. I am. And we're going to start with, obviously, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Not the defending champions from the Big East, though, a season ago. But, of course, the Ohio State Buckeyes who have aspirations of getting back to their perch atop college football, winning a national championship. And when you look at Ohio State this season, they are a $2 favorite to win the conference at FanDuel Sportsbook. Their win total sits at 10.5, but you do have to lay a hefty price tag to go over with the Buckeyes at minus 220. First time in five years, the Scarlet and Gray don't win the conference championship, and the first time in 10 years, they don't beat Michigan getting beaten down. But the reality of this is, Payne, Ohio State is damn good. They went out and they addressed some of their biggest concerns on the defensive side, bringing in a defensive coordinator in Jim Knowles. But before you even begin to worry about this stop unit and what the team is going to look like getting off the field on third down, this has arguably all the makings of one of the most prolific offenses in college football. There's some opposing coaches out there already saying that this group could rival 2019 LSU for its offensive proficiency. And it starts with a pivot, a man who we thought could win the Heisman Trophy a year ago in C.J. Stratton throwing to arguably the best receiving core in all of college football with a pair of running backs that are going to give defensive coordinators nightmare every single Saturday throughout the fall. So year four of Ryan Day running this ship, and I don't think there's a bigger fan of his from an offensive perspective than us. We thought it was actually a huge upgrade offensively from Urban, but now we head to 2022. And a question I was hesitant asking because I wasn't sure if it was hot take-ish, but I proposed at dinner just last week to you and Brad, and I'll now ask you publicly, at what point does Ryan Day need to get Ohio State over the hump before we start to question him? 
I was going to say, when you look at C.J. Stroud, knowing he has the potential to leave after this year, it may be as soon as this season. And I don't think coming in a bridesmaid, if Alabama is going to win the national championship, allows you to keep some of the boo birds at bay. Because at Ohio State, it's not about getting the college football playoff. It's not about win- winning Big Ten championships. It's winning national titles and doing so against Nick Saban before he retires. And on paper, the schedule looks tough. I think tougher than it actually is, right? Notre Dame out of the gate. You have the two crossover games against the favorites in the West with Wisconsin and Iowa. And then you're at Michigan State. You're at Penn State. You're at a top 20 offense in Maryland. And then you close out the season looking for some revenge against Michigan. That said, we have Ohio State projected as a preseason double-digit favorite in every game. I don't think we need to get too far into the weeds about Ohio State's offense because there's only going to be varying degrees of fantastic, to your point, when you have that much talent and, and a wizard pulling the strings. It's tough to get any better than last season, finishing number one in efficiency and number one in explosiveness and number one in EPA per play, you name it. But if I had to nitpick or kind of uncover things that would prevent Ohio State from getting to the college football playoff, because I think that's more productive for the conversation or listeners, O-line depth might be a concern if poor injury luck unfolds. It'll sound crazy because Smith and Jigba is elite and the talent is crazy. But I do wonder if Marvin Harrison Jr. and Julian Fleming can play at a similar level to Olave and Garrett Wilson. And I think that matters because if you look at C.J. Stroud, the first nine weeks last season, he was not very good getting to his next read. Meaning if the first read wasn't there, trouble getting to the second. And if his second read wasn't there, trouble getting to the third. So if teams are going to double Smith and Jigba and Harrison and Fleming can't routinely get open... Let's see what happens there. Receivers getting open wasn't a problem last season because you had three first-round picks, and only one of them had to beat man coverage for the play to be successful in a great system. That's kind of why we joked. It looks like this half-court pass layup drill. (laughs) But what if guys can't get open as much? And I think that's interesting because if you look at Stroud last season, his uncatchable pass rate when throwing into tight or closing windows ranked 44th out of 67 qualifying Power 5 quarterbacks. Again, completely nitpicking here trying to think of ways there could be some slight regression and you know the reason CJ Stroud and and this Buckeyes offense can be prolific is we did see him make some strides last year if that kind of play transpires from the onset and Stroud improved even more this offseason I think you know sky's the limit I mean I can remember Stroud's first start at Minnesota everyone had something to say but you could watch him improve with nearly every throw and that was really the mantra throughout the entire season because from weeks ten on, uh, week 10 onward, Stroud improved throwing to his next read. Those numbers were night and day compared to the first nine games. He went through his progressions better. He also ended up being the most efficient deep passer and vertical thrower. And what was really impressive to me was just watching his poise. He had no issues hanging in the pocket with his eyes, you know, downfield hunting those those big plays. He only broke the pocket on 10% of his dropbacks despite being quite mobile. And he was actually top 10 in pressure to sack conversion rate. So his pocket awareness is really elite. I think we know Stroud battled some early season shoulder injury that caused him to finally sit out week four against Akron last year. But when he returned in week five, from that point forward, he had the highest rate of accurate passes thrown. So I, I think he's going to just take that next step 
as a leader, he did clam up a little bit in the Michigan game, but again, freshman. So I think in addition to kind of tightening up the skill set, he needs to be the guy players in the huddle look to when things aren't going picture perfect. I'm sure there'll be a spot this season where the fireworks show has been halted a little bit and it's a close game and guys are going to look to him to get them over the top. Ryan Day claims Stroud's become that type of leader this offseason. Let's see. But not really anything crazy to identify in this side of the ball uh, because Ohio State's going to have an elite offense. Yeah, and I think you talk about you know what Stroud brings to the table, his talented receivers. Obviously, the running backs, no slouches either. You look at Travian Henderson and the way he can put defenses on their heels. We saw flashes of Mayan Williams last year. And if these guys are running into lighter boxes, they should be able to pick up six to eight yards a pop at minimum, especially against some of the schedule. The one thing I would say for Ohio State, if they're worried about one player or coach, make sure you give Brian Hartline whatever he wants because he has been the guru behind recruiting some of the top wide receiver talent, a far cry from what we've grown accustomed to in the Jim Trestle days where they were reluctant to let Terrell Pryor throw the ball more than three yards downfield. <laughs> but if the Buckeyes are going to take the next step, it's not because the offense isn't truly elite. It's because this defense has to be significantly better. And Ryan Day, of course, goes out and addresses that concern, bringing in Jim Knowles, the defensive coordinator from Oklahoma State, to kind of take over and you look at some of the numbers that this group produced a season ago allowed 30 plus points for five you know five times in the 2021 season you look at where they were from a yards per play standpoint in 2020 versus 2021 yes it got better from 5.9 to 5.3 but that's a far cry from elite level defense like we've grown accustomed to from Alabama and Georgia and, and more importantly you look at the points per game sure they made improvements from 25.8 points per game down to 22.8 but not exactly again a ringing endorsement for what you expect from a team who just couldn't get off the field on third down given a poor secondary and an inability to get after the opposing quarterback we've seen a lot of turnover on the coaching staff defensively we know Jim Knowles benefited immensely from one of the oldest defenses in all of college football last year in Oklahoma State who was actually older than I think six or eight NFL teams will he be able to translate that same level of success he has the talent here that's far superior to what he had in Stillwater but at the same time pain may not have that veteran leadership or experience to institute a much more complex scheme the defense of ohio state is a far more interesting discussion because of the wide-ranging opinions and possible variants i have heard some say ohio state easily gets back to being elite because if jim Knowles can do that with oklahoma state's talent it'll be a quick fix with ohio state's talent i also read an article this week on an ohio state blog that said don't expect an elite defense so lots of opinions here's what i know Jim Knowles runs a 4-2-5, and he's going to disguise his coverage as well. Sometimes he'll be in cover one man. Sometimes he'll be in cover four or even cover six. The gentlemen assisting Knowles are both elite. He brought in Jalen Ramsey's former DB coach, Tim Walton, who is highly respected. And he brought in Perry Eliano, who is responsible for the Cincinnati Bearcats secondary output the past few seasons. I think this is a huge upgrade. Will it be out of the gates? I don't know. I think you're going to see far more aggressiveness. But in saying that, we know Jim Knowles' system is very difficult to learn and pick up. He did bring over Tanner McAllister with him from Oklahoma State to help bridge that gap and be the on-field coach at safety. But if you look at Knowles' last two stops, his defenses have actually regressed in year one. So his first year at Duke, Blue Devils regressed from 75th in schedule-adjusted efficiency down to 97th. His first year at Oklahoma State was even worse. The Pokes went from 35th the year before Knowles got there 
to 71st in schedule adjusted defensive efficiency. It just kind of depicts how difficult his system is to pick up initially. But I look at Ohio State's defensive issues last season. They seem somewhat fixable. It was a soft defense. They were bullied in the trenches. They were horrific tacklers. They were outside the top 50 in line yards. Didn't do a good job penetrating. 95th and stuff rate. Sometimes that's a mindset thing. They played young guys on the line and at linebacker that could use an offseason in the weight room. The defensive ends didn't always do well setting the edge and forcing runners back inside. On third down, Ohio State had trouble getting consistent pressure. I actually like the secondary this year, especially with Knowles mixing some coverages. I'd bet large sums of money the Buckeyes finish better than 64th in EPA per pass allowed. You have Denzel Burke, you have Cameron Brown, both might end up being day one draft picks. Jordan Hancock's a nice insurance policy. I think Ohio State needs the freshman Jacqueline Johnson, a top 50 guy in the 2021 class to grow up quick, provide some depth at corner. The safety position could be the best on the defense. I don't think we see an elite Ohio State defense, but it can certainly improve even with a complex Jim Knowles system. And the positive here, if you can get past Notre Dame week one and man up in the trenches, Ohio State won't play an offense insider projected top 30 until games 11 and 12, Todd. So you have time to get acclimated to this new system if you can just be a man in week one. The <laughs> amount of disrespect you're heaping on the shoulders of one Graham Mertz for Ohio State's date with the Wisconsin Badgers on September 24th, Payne. It's hard for me to try and process, but you're exactly right when you look through the schedule. I mean, maybe the first vertical passing team they'll face will be Michigan State on the road in early October, but Maryland and Michigan, probably the only two teams that have playmakers that really scare you that much, especially on the outside no doubt about it now again gotta be men in the trenches this year gotta want to tackle gotta want to be physical that was really their downfall last year this is a team that yo go ahead i don't cut you off no 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 no, go for it no i was gonna say again this is a team that uh you know was embarrassed last last season and you let little brother get up off the deck in michigan so sometimes you can never put the genie back in the bottle so anything less than an undefeated season uh or a big 10 east and obviously subsequent big 10 championship will be considered a massive disappointment and i think when you look at the buckeyes you know anything less than getting to the national championship has to be considered an underachieving season given all the talent that they have on campus in columbus yeah, without question. I think, you know, if if limits are not an issue for you, there's there's probably better ways to attack Ohio State winning a national championship than just betting that, right? There's, you know, CJ Stroud to win Heisman and, and things of that nature, whether you wanna mix those bets up, but there are ways to attack Ohio State, I think, at, at some better odds than are currently out there that are kind of hit you in the face, obvious. Yeah, should be an interesting team to watch. And as you highlighted, again, we'll preview in greater detail as we inch closer to Labor Day weekend. Uh, We'll open the season as two touchdown favorites welcoming in Notre Dame, potentially a preview of what we could see in Big Ten conference play a couple of years down the road. But from the team that wants to get back atop the mountain to the team that was atop the mountain in 2021, the Michigan Wolverines. And they come into the season as 8-1 to underdogs to win the Big Ten. Their win total at FanDuel Sportsbook sits at 9.5 flat. 
And I guess the overarching question for the Maize and Blue, what can be done for an encore to their first ever college football playoff berth uh, and conference title under Jim Harbaugh? Obviously, major offseason ramifications where Jim Harbaugh seemed to flirt with every job that was remotely interested in trying to acquire his services. But when you look at this team offensively, there'll be a change as far as offensive coordinators concerned. Josh Gaddis off to Miami, as we previewed on the ACC podcast, which I encourage all of you, our loyal listeners, if you're just getting started on your college football prep, to go back and listen to. So in comes Sharon Moore, in comes Charlie Weiss Jr. to kind of work as co-OCs. This was a rushing attack that was outstanding last year, but they lose one of their battering ram, so to speak, and Hassan Haskins. But in my opinion, Payne, they get more explosive if it means Donovan Edwards get more touches. And probably the most fascinating uh, competition that we're going to see in fall practice, the quarterback battle. By all accounts, Cade McNamara should be the guy because J.J. McCarthy wasn't available in the spring. But J.J. is the one that comes in more decorated with a lot more accolades. He probably makes the offense more multiple. But I think Cade passed every test and answered every question that was asked for him a season ago. Like you mentioned, right, everyone wants to talk about Cade McNamara, J.J. McCarthy in that battle, and I'm sure we're going to see both again this season. Right now, though, to your point, it's tough to project anyone but Cade McNamara barring injury, seeing the most important snaps early in this season when you lead an offense that was top 20 in both schedule adjusted efficiency and EPA per play and take your team to the college football playoffs, which exceeded expectation by a long mile. It's tough not to get the first crack, especially as you alluded to, right? J.J. McCarthy hasn't thrown much this offseason after a shoulder injury. Regardless of who's under center, I like the hogs up front. The weapons for Michigan are plentiful. O-line returns its left tackle, left guard, right guard, and snagged arguably the best lineman from the portal and center, Victor Olawatimi. He's a Remington Trophy finalist and graded out the third best run blocking center in the country last season. He was damn good in pass protection as well. Starting right tackle will be Trent Jones, a former fringe top 100 kid from the 2019 class. Got his feet wet last season with more than 100 snaps. Graded out extremely well. Weapon-wise, Ronnie Bell returns from the week one ACL tear to lead the receiver room. That was a guy who I thought was fantastic in, in 2020. 2.2 yards per route run. Donovan Edwards is going to see an expanded role. His versatility catching passes out of the backfield is unmatched, right? Whether it's it's lining up in the slot or taking a safety or linebacker out wide on an island, that is a tough matchup for anyone in the country. Blake Corum returns. Would have eclipsed 1,000 yards if not for the late season ankle sprain. He actually finished number one in rushing yards over expectation last year. He makes guys miss routinely. Lots of broken tackles for his size. Also a threat catching passes. Lots of praise, what we're hearing from the receiver room, from the young guys, Darius Clemens, Andrell Anthony, especially during spring camp. Eric Hall leads a loaded tight end group. This is easily the most playmakers Michigan has had in Harbaugh's tenure. But you kind of hinted at this at the very top because I wondered the same thing. If Michigan can flip the switch and be physical when they want without Asan Haskins, he was not only a downhill runner, that set the tone, but he was a willing and an elite pass protector as well. And there were games last season, whether it was cold, wind, rain, snow, or the pass game simply wasn't efficient where Harbaugh just said, F it, feed the horse. Michigan likely loses at Nebraska, at Penn State without Haskins, and probably doesn't upset Ohio State in the cold and snow. Nearly 500 total yards in those three games alone, along with seven touchdowns. At Penn State, Haskins had a higher usage rate 
than Cade McNamara. Okay, so that's just something I'm making a mental note of as I look at short yardage metrics, as competition gets tougher, as weather becomes a factor. If Michigan's offense, though, can be more dynamic while matching the physicality from last season, I think they have a chance to be a top five schedule adjusted offense in the country this year, Todd. Yeah, and no disrespect to this Michigan offense, but clearly they're not going to get tested in terms of physicality until they go to Kinnick Stadium in early October. You get four soft defenses. None are going to be able to put you on your heels in Colorado State, Hawaii, UConn, and even Maryland for your conference opener out of the gates. So we'll get a much better indication to your point if they're able to play downhill and pick up some of those tough yards when they go on the road against a Big Ten West opponent. But... You know, for all the optimism we can have about this team on the offensive side, which so much production returning, defensively, there have to be question marks. Jesse Minter steps in as defensive coordinator as Mike McDonald bolts to join another Harbaugh in the National Football League with the Baltimore Ravens. And when you look at some of the numbers that they compiled, I mean, Michigan forced a stop on more than 75% of opposing drives last year and allowed 1.43 points per drive, both of which represented massive year-over-year improvements from 2020 when Michigan ranked... 105th in the country at stop rate is shade better than 50% uh, and allowed almost three points per drive the year before. Plus, this is now a Michigan team that's going to look a heck of a lot different. And we can say what we want about physicality on the offensive side. There have to be concerns about replacing the kind of productivity you get from an Aiden Hutchinson, a David Ojabo. Even as well as Michigan is recruited, there are talented players there, but sometimes you don't have those linchpins and stalwarts you can lean on when you need them most. I don't care how well you recruit. It's tough losing your defensive coordinator in three first-round picks, and that's what it would have been if Ajabo didn't tear his Achilles at the combine. Michigan is bottom 10 in returning defensive production, and it was the elite kind of production at premium positions. Two defensive ends and Dax Hill, who could play the role of a rangy safety one snap and be your best cover corner taking away the slot the very next snap. In this effort to not upset the apple cart, A form of incest took place, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but you have Michigan's former D.C. Mike McDonald going to older brother Harbaugh's Ravens. In return, younger brother Harbaugh brings Jesse Minner from the Ravens to employ the same defensive system. It is tough enough replacing eight starters, so Jim didn't want that process to also include a scheme change. So expect you know the same thing. Lots of dime defense again, some odd man fronts, some exotic blitzes. Michigan's D-line is interesting from the perspective of damn good defensive tackle starters with Maze Smith and Chris Jenkins, but little depth behind them. Decent depth on the edge, but searching for elite play. So I would envision lots of rotations early, keeping guys fresh, finding the best four. Local beat writers are hyping Mike Morris and Taylor Upshaw, but both have played pretty significant snaps to this point. Mike Morris is a plus starter, I think, but he's not elite. Taylor Upshaw is a plus starter, but hasn't really proven to be elite in nearly 500 career snaps spanning three seasons. Linebacker is interesting. Whether it's coaches or players, everyone seems to rave about Junior Colson. He started as a freshman, top 90 player in the 2021 recruiting class. He's going to improve and has great traits, but he graded out Michigan's worst defender that played at least 10 snaps last season. It was an absolute disaster in coverage. If Colson is half as good as the hype, he's going to help the defense. DJ Turner at corners coming off a great season. Will Johnson, a top 15 kid and early enrollee, is going to see some playing time, whether it's opposite Turner outside or in the slot. But you can't lose your DC 
eight starters, including, you know, premium first round talent and not regress. Whether you look at schedule adjusted efficiency, EPA per rush allowed, EPA per pass allowed, quality possessions allowed, explosiveness allowed. Michigan was top 25 in all those key metrics. That's simply not going to be the case this season. So the key is not having the drop off be, you know, monumental. And knowing that offense equates to winning more than defense, Michigan's offense is going to have to carry more weight to make up for the defensive regression. Now, there are some positives. Michigan's defense has a chance to get acclimated out of the gates. Colorado State, Hawaii, UConn, all offenses projected outside our top 105 in efficiency before you host a really good Maryland offense. But outside of the Terps and the regular season finale at Ohio State, the remaining schedule of, of offenses Michigan plays is quite manageable. In fact, the 10 other offenses not named Maryland or Ohio State have a projected average efficiency rank of 83rd. Plus, Michigan should have fantastic special teams again. And whether it was field goal points over expectation or net kickoff yards, Michigan was elite in both those areas. And those things led to direct points on the scoreboard and indirect points by having fantastic field position for both the offense and defense. So if that continues and opposing offenses are forced to drive 74 yards on average for a touchdown again this season, I think that's surely going to help the Wolverines defense go through this massive change. How quickly did the dissenters come out uh, if Jim Harbaugh struggles against Ohio State and they lose the game by four touchdowns this year? Does he completely exhaust some of the goodwill he built in the first conference championship in quite some time depends if they win the uh 11 games prior I, you know i don't i don't know I, I i think it just all depends what happens early obviously you'd like to keep that momentum in recruiting and win back-to-back games against your your hated rival but i think ultimately if you have a fantastic first 11 games and if you were to lose a close one to Ohio State, you probably could still sneak in maybe, depending on what transpires throughout the rest of the country into the college football playoff. But if you lose by four touchdowns, certainly that's a little bit discouraging. The uh, good thing for Michigan, when you look at their schedule, outside of the soft landing spot and four straight home games to kick things off, they also get a bye heading into their in-state showdown against Michigan State, which typically will bode well. So expectations are there for the maize and blue to try and get back to a double digit win season and compete for a conference title in back-to-back seasons. When you go from that top tier of the Big Ten East into a slightly more muddled look at a couple of the other power programs, the Penn State and Nittany Lions check in right behind them. You're looking at Penn State 14 to 1 at FanDuel Sportsbook to win the conference championship. Their win total sits at eight and a half, shaded under minus a dollar thirty. When you look at this Penn State program, it's kind of been a tale of two seasons for James Franklin during his time on campus. From 2016 to 2019, the Nittany Lions went 42 and 11. Since then, there are five. 500 program at just 11 and 11 but more importantly for Penn State they're 7 and 17 against Ohio State Michigan and Michigan State since James Franklin has been their head coach you look at this team offensively Mike Yurcich comes back in his second year in the system hoping it pays dividends this unfortunately was a Penn State offense that couldn't get out of its own way for stretches last year dealt with some concerns at the running back position Sean Clifford a far cry from being 100% but when you look at Clifford's number he was 74th in the FBS overall efficiency 70th in completion percentage last year but 
for Clifford's sake, this is the first time in six years he won't need to learn a new offense going into a season. Penn State loses Jahan Dotson to the National Football League. They do have some talented running backs. They get a very impactful transfer, in my opinion, to help that receiving room. But when you're looking at the Penn State offense going into the 2022 season, reason for optimism that this team will take a step forward from where they finished a year ago. Hell yeah. You have Sean Clifford, who is a super senior now, operating the familiar system you mentioned, something that hasn't been the case in recent years with musical chairs at OC because I think James Franklin wears on people and is quite overrated. Neither here nor there. (laughs) Priors are something we talk about when projecting ahead. They're always going to be in our forward projections and weighted more towards the beginning portion of the season. But I think it's important to make a manual adjustment for Penn State's offense because if you look at that unit heading into the Iowa game when Sean Clifford was healthy, it was an offense top 20 in EPA per pass, top 30 in early downs and bypassing third downs on early downs. Then Clifford marched Penn State's offense up and down the field early at Kinnick and poof, he leaves with an injury before halftime. For the remainder of the season, Penn State's offense fell off a cliff and was extremely predictable because it couldn't do much with Clifford operating at about 60% health and Taquan Roberson just isn't that guy. So you fast forward to the end of the season and now Penn State's outside the top 80 in early down EPA and bypassing third down and early downs and the passing game wasn't efficient. With Clifford healthy now and a solid receiver core, with Parker Washington becoming the man, and you hinted at the transfer Mitchell Tinsley integrating in along with a ton of athletic tight ends, the pass catchers look good. The problem for multiple years now with this offense and why it's lacked consistency is the O-line group. I mean, it's been a question mark for five, six years now, and ultimately that's going to determine the ceiling of Penn State's offense. Now, returning production's key. But specific to Penn State's O-line, this is where returning production needs to be gauged on a case-by-case basis, and sometimes it becomes irrelevant. Penn State was outside the top 100 in line yards, opportunity rate, stuff rate allowed. Over 22% of runs were stuffed last year. One of the worst five teams in college football in terms of EPA per rush. Penn State was 106th in tackles for loss allowed because the O-line was just a turnstile, like five matadors out there, okay? But what gives me some hope for improvement there is there's only one direction to go but up. And the second thing is the talent. I'm looking at some of the names. I'm looking at some of the pedigree. Sal Wormley, Olu Fashunu, Landon Tangwell, they have to live up to the hype. If you look at Wormley, missed the entire season with an injury last year, but he's a four-star Mauler. Fashan, who started the bowl game at left tackle against an SEC team in Arkansas and graded out. Fantastic. Tangwell was a borderline five-star kid and a top recruit in Penn State's 2021 class. He's going to kick inside to guard. He had a solid freshman season in limited snaps. His lone start against Rutgers was awesome. You have Juice Scruggs, who was an elite center recruit, but had to play out of position last season. He's going to shift back to center where he's most comfortable. Caden Wallace has the pedigree, but was disappointing in an expanded role last year. Let's see if he improves. Penn State brings in the Cornell transfer, Hunter Norzad, signed four-star Drew Shelton. So I think you have to like your top seven guys. And I, the top five, to me, based on pedigree, are going to be an improvement. And then the guys that help make the O-line better 
are the running backs. And Penn State landed the number one running back in the country in five-star freshman Nick Singleton. He was getting a ton of burn already in camp. Four-star power back, Catron Allen from, from IMG Academy, to pair with him was fantastic in camp as well. The schedule of defenses this season is easier as well. You effectively swap out Wisconsin and Iowa and replace them with Purdue and Northwestern. I can see Purdue and Indiana's defenses regressing as well. You also have three defenses outside our top 80 in Ohio, CMU, and Maryland on the schedule. So I, I think the offense in year two with Yersich and a healthier Sean Clifford is, is going to be much better. Well, and you talked a little bit about the running game and Nick Singleton, no doubt, the prize recruit, especially to secure the state. You look back at Penn State and some of the futility that they've shown running the football. The program has now gone 16 games without a single player topping the century mark. It's actually the program's longest such streak since 1961 and 1964 when it went 28 games without a player getting over 100 yards. And when you look back at some of the non-conference opponents Penn State has beaten during this stretch, not a ringing endorsement for the physicality of the offensive line or lack thereof that you kind of alluded to and if you wonder how poor that offensive line play was last year for Penn State I encourage you guys to go back and watch the nine overtime debacle where Penn State wasn't able to move Illinois off the line of scrimmage with countless running plays inside the three yards line playing at Beaver Stadium. As far as Penn State defensively, we're seeing a change at the helm. Manny Diaz comes in from Miami, takes over for Brent Pry, who moved off to Virginia Tech as their head coach. Pry, though, the relationship runs deeper. He was arguably one of James Franklin's closest confidants. The two of them have spoken extensively about how much they leaned on one another. So it's building a business relationship and one to try and get to translate it to on-field productivity. When you look at Penn State defensively, they allowed touchdowns and just 13.6% of drives last season. The fifth lowest rate in all of FBS, but part of that was because how good Penn State was in the red zone, holding opponents to touchdowns on less than 38% of their touches there, fifth in yards per play allowed in the red zone, and five red zone takeaways tied for the most nationally. If there's one thing you've taught me, though, Payne, red zone defensive efficiency is not necessarily a predictor of year-to-year success, and despite a lot of optimism and big names along this Penn State defense, there are some concerns for a team that is extremely thin at the linebacker position I think Manny Diaz is an above average defensive mind but Brent Pry is is better so there is a little bit of a downgrade there in my mind speaking to Manny Diaz we've talked about his style at nauseam before it's about penetrating gaps and playing downhill and being extremely aggressive with blitzes he wants to create havoc right get opponents behind the chains and force turnovers that style does lead to some explosiveness allowed, and that's something Penn State under Brent Pry focused on avoiding. Last year's Penn State defense was top 10 in explosive play defense. Didn't allow. On paper, Penn State's D-line should be the strength again, but a couple of key cogs are returning from serious injuries. ACL for Mustafer and an Achilles for Isaac. Chop Robinson was a massive get in the portal. He was a 24-7 number two edge rusher in the 2021 class. You have a four-year veteran at end as well and Nick Tarburton. He's played about 500 snaps in his career, better against the run than getting to the quarterback. Then you have Danny Dennis Sutton, a top 30 player in 2022 who will fight for snaps as a freshman. Arguably the best defensive recruit PSU has had since Micah Parsons. 
Linebacker, to your point, a little bit of a question mark. They're going to need Curtis Jacobs to improve his coverage skills, and Kobe King looks like the more talented option over Tyler Edelson. Manny Diaz has moved Jonathan Sutherland from safety to outside linebacker. So I think, to your point, depth is a concern there. The production is a little bit of a concern there. I think that position group could be down a notch. At times, we've seen Manny Diaz defenses not be completely buttoned up. So I would expect some regression with opposing offensive production when getting into scoring territory, to your point, because that is something that's a little bit more difficult to repeat. Penn State allowed 2.5 points per trip inside the 40. That was fourth best in the country. The other part of a solid defense is having your opponents start with horrific field position. Okay. And Penn State has to replace their all-world punter, Jordan Stout, who was number two in net average last season. He allowed Penn State's defense to have a top 25 ranking in field position. So I would expect that to change a little bit as well. Schedule-wise, three matchups against elite offenses in Ohio State, Michigan, and Maryland. Other nine offenses Penn State's going to face, though, have an average of uh, projected efficiency rank of 70th. So that will be the ultimate test. My feeling is when they step up in class, they might be a little overwhelmed, but you do get nine other matchups against offenses that you should be able to push around a little bit. I think ultimately we'll know pretty quickly out of the gates what it looks like against a Purdue offense that you know does have some O-line questions, but overall a decent offense with a, a very good mind running it. And then you have the middle of season matchup against Michigan and couple weeks later against Ohio State where you you step up in in class big time so that'll be interesting the defense to me I much prefer Brent Pry now I like Manny Diaz's style but again just the way he teaches it not the most organized of humans so again you're going to regress in some of those those areas that you were really good in last year with explosive play defense and and probably you're going to see some regression Todd as you alluded to in the red zone department Yeah, and you mentioned uh, that week one game should be fascinating, one that'll be probably the most viewed on that Thursday night schedule. No soft non-conference opener for the Penn State Nittany Lions as they'll go on the road to West Lafayette to take on Purdue Penn State. As it stands right now, right around a field goal favorite, a game that I'm sure will break down in a little bit more depth as we inch closer to kickoff in that contest. Last Early money on Purdue there. Did open four and a half. Knows know a couple guys who who grab Purdue plus four and a half in that, and that's why we are down to three. So can be a sneaky gives you a little bit of a sneaky a difficult place to play. We've seen that electric environment, and uh, when you're talking about a defense, especially one led by Manny Diaz, where as you've alluded to, players are known to not necessarily be assignment sound. Jeff Brom, I'm sure, has to be itching to try and create a little bit of misdirection and take advantage of some of that lack of discipline should it be out there, especially with a veteran quarterback. But we shall see what we have in that contest. Last but certainly not least in the Big Ten East, the team that I don't think anybody expected much from a season ago, they run out there and they impressed everybody coming up short in their Peach Bowl, or excuse me, winning the Peach Bowl um, and getting to a New Year's Six Bowl game. That, of course, being the Michigan State Spartans, who find themselves at 25-1, to 
at FanDuel Sportsbook. Their win total for the season sits at seven and a half. And what I found interesting, Payne, is you read between the tea leaves and sometimes coaches just come out and tell you their overall feelings on where their roster is. And Mel Tucker was pretty outspoken, said, I felt good about this team. I feel good about the culture of our program. The guys are bought in. The new guys, they fit in well. And we have a lot of competition. I told those guys when we started our eight-week program, no one has a guaranteed job. Just because you started last season doesn't mean you'll start this season. It's an open competition. There's no sense of entitlement. And I think that's important to get out there knowing that Mel Tucker has hit the transfer portal harder than maybe any other coach in the Big Ten. Going to take a little while to create some of those pipelines and bring in recruits, but you do bring back a starting quarterback in Peyton Thorne. There's a lot of skill position guys to get excited about, highlighted by Jaden Reed. And while Kenneth Walker's production may be difficult to replace, you do have two semi-decorated running backs and Jarek Broussard from Colorado and Jalen Berger expected to compete for that number one job. But what can Michigan State do for an encore? Because there's no doubt last year, none of us expected that team in East Lansing to be as prolific offensively as what we saw week in, week out. So let's start with Mel Tucker because you did mention him and he has serious momentum and juice on the recruiting trail right now. He is certainly one of the the it coaches. The vibe in East Lansing is far better than in D'Antonio's final seasons. But you're kind of hinting at it, right? When you go from a last place Big Tenies projection to winning 11 games, there's now expectation. You're not sneaking up on anybody. And it's tough for me to see last year's formula for Michigan State being repeatable. And just kind of forget about hitting the transfer portal lotto back-to-back years. That's difficult to do. But Sparty went 4-0 in one-score games, all of which they trailed at some point in the second half. Beat the early season version of Miami with a less than 100% De'Ara King. Trailed by double digits heading into the fourth quarter in the Peach Bowl to a Kenny Pickettless Pittsburgh. There were multiple anomalies last season and I think you see the mindset from odds makers by a number at seven and a half and some opened as low as seven now I'm not saying that was the right number I think we all kind of had in our mind some level of regression and we'd like to fade Michigan State and then the market plopped a number of seven and seven and a half you're like Jesus at seven <laughs> might be some value in going over even though we would think the perception is that Michigan State's really overvalued right now the offensive priors from last season are really tough for me to integrate into to my projections for this season. Very few running backs at 211 pounds can run 4-3. Kenneth Walker did that at the combine. He also had 89 broken tackles, which led all of college football. And those broken tackles turned into nearly 1,200 yards after contact, which also led all of college football. We talk about the running back position being devalued, but at the college level, that's not always a thing. And you start to separate Kenneth Walker's production from Sparty's offensive line, and it leaves me a little concerned because Sparty's O-line wasn't great last year creating space. They're outside the top 75 in line yards, opportunity rate, and stuff rate allowed. And that was with a balanced attack that saw Peyton Thorne set multiple school records through the air. Now, the projected starting five for Michigan State's O-line is a really veteran group depth is a little bit of a concern so you hope the older guys claiming starting roles on the right side of the line and Matt Carrick and Spencer Brown repeat last season's performance with limited snaps into a larger sample of hopefully 600 plus snaps this season the projected starting left tackle Jarrett Horst and center Nick Samick in three plus seasons have never produced anything more than an average overall blocking grade maybe Jalen Berger and Jarek Broussard, who you mentioned, can fill 
the Kenneth Walker role. We'll see. I think where Sparty's strength appears to be is is through the air with Peyton Thorne, Jaden Reed, and emerging Keon Coleman, along with Trey Mosley in the slot. Jaden Reed is really special. Felt like he won every 50-50 ball thrown his way last season. <laughs> Nearly 2.7 yards per route run. Reed was one of four qualifying receivers in the entire country to have an A dot of 13 yards or more while also averaging at least six yards after the catch. So a guy that can win downfield or with the ball in his hands if you get it to him quickly. Peyton Thorne's the big question mark here. He's got to take his game to another level. Needs to be more than a quarterback that excels in perfect conditions. And so if you look at his metrics last year, he was solid when the O-line kept him clean or he threw with play action. But under pressure, Peyton Thorne graded 49th out of 73 qualifying quarterbacks that faced at least 100 dropbacks of pressure. Of the 91 qualifying quarterbacks with at least 300 dropbacks, Peyton Thorne was 59th in adjusted completion percentage discrepancy from play action throws versus non-play action throws. And if you look, you have a guy like Kenneth Walker helping the Sparty offense be wildly efficient on early downs, yet Sparty struggled to convert third and fourth down. So I think Thorne has to raise his game past being an above average to good quarterback for us not to see an offensive drop off this year. Schedule wise, Sparty needs to get the offense humming early against Western Michigan and Akron. Final 10 weeks, Sparty only faces one defense we project outside our top 50. Average projected efficiency rank of the final 10 defense Michigan State faces, 30th. So this is a grueling schedule of defenses that Sparty's going to face. Expect offensive regression here. Yeah, I mean, this was a team uh, that we were surprised by last year. You kept waiting for the wheels to fall off, and they never really did. We'll see if rubber meets the road this season, especially behind an offensive line. To your point, that could have had a number of its deficiencies masked by the talent uh, of Kenneth Walker and his ability to break tackles on a week-in, week-out basis. Defensively, Scotty Hazleton brings in a group uh, and a Michigan State team that was one of only six teams in all of college football to log more than 1,000 snaps on defense in 2021. One of only two Power 5 teams to have that distinction along with Tennessee. We know why with Tennessee, because they play so quickly on offense. Michigan State defensively, it was just because they couldn't get off the field. So much expectation coming out of spring camp is that Hazleton might look to go a little bit more matchup based given opponents personnel from the 425 shell they played most of 2021 the group struggled as the season went on uh, you know talked a little bit about their inability to get off the field on third down the MSU run defense was outstanding I mean ranked 15th nationally in yards per game and 14th in yards per carry but that's because any offensive coordinator with a half a brain realized hey look there's no reason to bang our heads into a brick wall and try and run against the Michigan State front when you can throw the football like a glorified seven on seven drill and when you look at Michigan State couldn't get after the quarterback uh, couldn't get sacks I mean there were a number of red flags for this stop unit can they approve on any of those areas Payne and what do you expect of Michigan State's defense in 2022 I think you really hit things pretty well there you look at Michigan State's defense it was top 30 in schedule adjusted efficiency but they were outside the top 50 in EPA per play allowed roughly 80 percent of the production returns on defense and the four defensive transfers coming in, everyone's excited about. You have Chris Bogle coming in from Florida, was a former fringe five-star end. Jacoby Winman was one of UNLV's best players. Aaron Burley is a thumper from the SEC, not necessarily 
my vibe at linebacker and Florida State chose not to bring him in. Amir Speed comes over from Georgia and is slated to start at corner. So you did bring in some high-level pedigree guys from larger schools. You pair those four guys with a Jacob Slade, who is top 10 nationally among defensive tackles in both pressures and run stops. That's not bad. The strength is with Slade, Barrow, and, and Hansen up the middle. That allowed Sparty to be top 10 in EPA per rush allowed. You mentioned that. Let's see if they can generate more negative plays in the run game, though. Only finished 80th in stuffing runs. Jeff Petrowski elevates to a full-time starter at defensive end. He's better as an edge setter than pass rusher, but had the third-best defensive grade for Sparty last season. You lose both starting defensive ends. If you look after Petrowski, only one guy in Sparty's roster has registered more than 10 tackles at the end. Sparty struggled to get pressure in known passing situations last season, so Mel Tucker hired a pass rush specialist and Brandon Jordan. The hope is maybe an early enrollee like Chase Carter can provide some rotational depth at end. The other question mark past consistent pressure is the secondary. Michigan State finished outside the top 65 in schedule adjusted passing success rate allowed and EPA per pass allowed. Mel Tucker is going to be more hands-on and is going to personally coach corners this fall and effectively add DB coach to his title. And I think it's needed because Michigan State had the largest defensive run-pass dichotomy in college football. Ninth in EPA per rush allowed, 89th in EPA per pass allowed. So I think we can see improvement on this side of the ball for two reasons right Mel Tucker being more hands-on with the secondary and past the three elite offenses where Sparty will likely struggle defensively the nine offenses on the schedule not named Ohio State Michigan and Maryland are all projected outside my top 50 an average projected efficiency rank of those nine offenses 84th this was an interesting one and I kind of hinted at it at the very beginning, when Circa opened lower than market at seven on Michigan State, some pro bettors sought out value and went over. But at seven and a half, there really hasn't been much appetite for Sparty, knowing this is a team that won 10 regular season games and 11 in total, you would think, hey, we're, we're just going to go over seven and a half. But there are some larger things at play here, and I do think we'll see uh, some regression in the the win total just based upon again basic things right not even just the team stuff but some of the things we mentioned at the top winning some of those games four of which you trailed at some point in the second half last year yeah there's a lot of numbers to suggest that Michigan State will come back to the pack but unfortunately the betting market has already built that in to some of their season-long projections and that's why you saw the win total open a lot lower than some of us anticipated as we would have loved to make a case to go under Michigan State's win total if you could have happened to have an eight floating around out there somewhere so Michigan State will be an interesting team to watch it's a little bit different when you can sneak up on teams when you're hailing from the Big Ten East a little bit different now when you have a target on your back if they can match that level of intensity week to week from the east we shift to the west and as far as the big 10 west is concerned you may as well go back in time 30 years because most of these teams like to do the same thing run the football offensively and hit you in the mouth defensively not a lot of high-flying offense or fireworks inducing football games when these teams do battle 
And we can start with a team that listed as the favorite to come out of that half of the draw, the Wisconsin Badgers. They're 14 to 1 to win the Big Ten, plus $1.70 to win the Big Ten West at FanDuel Sportsbook. And the win total sits at 8.5, shaded to the over minus $1.40. It's now been a decade since the Badgers have won a conference championship. But Coach Christ realized he had to try and bring this offense into the 21st century. You see a change at offensive coordinator. In comes Bobby Ingram, you know, Penn State product to try and modernize some of what the Badgers would like to do. The passing game, well, Payne, it can't get any worse than what we saw for stretches last year. And unfortunately for Ingram, there ain't a whole lot of experience at the receiver position to get excited about. But as always, Wisconsin, we know, loves to produce running backs, and they may have one of the most talented backs in the entire country in Braylon Allen. When you look at this Badgers team offensively, should we finally be buying into the Graham Mertz hype machine, or is this the final year where we sell our stock and Wisconsin goes, you know what, Graham, it's been fun, but it's time for us to go in a different direction. We're seven seasons into Paul Chris's tenure, and I have no idea if he's any good. <laughs> That's pretty I impressive. Just... <laughs> That's pretty impressive in seven years to be able to mask and disguise what you actually are, the chameleon-like effect. I mean, he came in as an offensive-minded coach and erratic best describes his offense over those seven years. He was hired in 15. Year one, his offense was outside the top 75 in schedule just efficiency. The year before he got there, it was a top 20 unit. So year one regression. In 2016, not much better, squeaked inside the top 60. Then all of a sudden, the light turned on, good enough quarterback play with a dominant offensive line, and from 17 to 19... Wisconsin had an average efficiency rank offensively of 14th, finished all three seasons inside the top 20. And I think we just all assumed landing Graham Mertz after that, the highest rated quarterback in Wisconsin history, the offense would just be unstoppable with this kind of ground attack the Badgers are notorious for with a legit NFL quarterback to boot. Mertz has been an absolute flop. And there's a ton of metrics that support that but even the most basic ones right five touchdowns to 13 picks against teams with winning records through three seasons Mertz has 22 turnover worthy throws to just 15 passing touchdowns and a slew of fumbles as well plus the offensive line just has not been as dominant the last two seasons outside the top 80 back-to-back seasons and opportunity rate that has led to a Wisconsin offense in 2022 that or 2020 that dropped outside the top 40. And then last year, if you remember some of the offseason discussions we had, Paul Chris was like, hey, um, I'm taking back play calling duties. So I'm going to be the head coach, the OC, the QB coach and play caller. And Wisconsin has <laughs> dipped even lower to 60th in schedule adjusted efficiency. And so now we've seen another shift this offseason where you are bringing in Bobby Ingram to revamp the offense bring in some new ideas call the plays he's a former NFL receiver some of you may be familiar with in in Seattle I believe he's probably most recognized there he was the Baltimore Ravens receivers and tight ends coach since 2014 you also have a new O-line coach a new running back coach a new tight end coach a new QB coach listen it would appear at some level that improvement's going to happen offensively this year. You're going to have a little more creativity, I think, less predictability. Wisconsin isn't going to you know, change its identity completely, but they were eighth in rush attempts over expectation. And when you're not efficient running, that becomes a little bit of a problem. Now, I understand why they weren't completely efficient running because no one respected pass. But again, the, the O-line 
has not been its elite self. On paper, this version of Wisconsin's own line is better than the past two iterations, right? The projected starters have an average four-star rating. Braylon Allen looks like the next great Wisconsin back, led the country in yards per rush after contact and yards per rush against loaded boxes. There's depth at the running back position as well. And then you start digging into metrics that should have positive regression. Somehow, Wisconsin was an offense that had a slew of quality possessions. Through 11 weeks, the Badgers offense was top 15 in quality possessions, yet they only averaged 3.8 points per quality possession. Could not finish drives. 98th in busted drive rate and outside the top 110 in finishing drives. Wisconsin led the country in punts and opponent territory. So they would fizzle in plus territory. And because Paul Christ, for some reason, as an offensive mind, was so conservative, he would punt. But if you can get increased O-line play, Braylon Allen starts from the onset. There's more creativity offensively. And rumor has it, Graham Mertz will operate from under center more, which means more play action. And that was actually an area where Mertz was good last season. 110 passer rating with play action, 3-1 to one touchdown interception ratio, 75% adjusted accuracy, and a 10.5 A dot. The problem was Mertz only threw play action 20% of the time. So figure that out, Paul Christ. Expect more of more uh, play action this season. There are question marks with the pass catchers, though. You have, you know, Dyke and Bell appear to be the one-two punch. If defenses can't cheat, I think positive regression and finishing drives and overall uh, progression will happen here. Plus, there is time to get acclimated knowing Illinois State, Wazoo, New Mexico State's defenses are the first three weeks before you face an Ohio State team that we project to be better, but is learning a brand new system in the first month of the season. So there's opportunity here for offensive progression for, for Wisconsin. Now, I think we've been kind of thinking that would be the case the last few years, but it just has not transpired because Graham Mertz has not been very good. Get him under center, use more play action. I think things will be better. Definitely feel like we've been a broken record when it comes to the Badgers thinking this is going to be the year that that offense finally breaks through and some of the numbers will send chills down your spine uh, when you dig into exactly what Graham Mertz hasn't been able to do, where this team is ranked in pass efficiency, and more importantly, how inept they have been in some of their losses where getting to 17 points feels like a Herculean task. We'll see if the Badgers can show a little bit more ability to consistently put up crooked numbers as they come into this after their worst back-to-back seasons as far as offensive output in 30 years as a program but for all I think that's the interesting part because I think we were shocked at how bad the offense was but if you go back to last season's preview we called for regression because we didn't really believe in Graham Mertz or the options that were coming back at running back and then all of a sudden Braylon Allen emerged but that was an offense we said was going to suck again I was just surprised how bad it was well, the crazy part about it, too, is you look at how they performed. I mean, after a 1-3 and three start, they showed some level of competence. Now, Mertz's touchdown-interception ratio doesn't leave you any reason to be excited, and we didn't talk at all about the receiver room. I mean, there aren't weapons, so they're going to have to figure some of that out real fast in terms of what players will be able to make some plays and give Mertz a reliable threat throwing the ball downfield. But that's a different discussion for a different day rather than us sitting here trying to gouge our eyes out. Wisconsin defensively, though, hey, look, we know what the Badgers have been. You, there might not be any bigger fan out there than what 
we are of Jim Leonard and what he's meant to this team on that side of the ball. The Badgers held opponents without a first down or a touchdown on 46% of drives a season ago, the highest rate in all of the FBS. Wisconsin allowed an FBS low of 20.9 yards per drive and one touchdown drive of at least 80 yards was also tops in the nation. But you do lose eight defensive starters from last year's group. Fortunately for the Badgers, it's rinse and repeat with some difference makers, whether it's Keanu Benton and Isaiah Mullins along the defensive line or a player like Nick Herbig and CJ Goats in the linebacking core. There's a lot of reason to be excited about difference makers defensively for the Badgers, even if they won't have that level of experience going into week one if it wasn't for Jim Leonard and being in the lesser Big Ten division Paul Christ would have been gone by now I think the world of Jim Leonard but the reason we kind of harped on the offense needing to improve is because I think Leonard has his work cut out for him relatively speaking this year you mentioned the eight defensive starters that are not returning that only allowed 31 percent of plays to grade successful that was inside the top five in EPA per play allowed and schedule adjusted efficiency that is a lot to lose and I understand that occasionally Wisconsin will land a massive recruit a lot of it is about scheme and system fit but I just think you lose that many guys it's very difficult to replicate the kind of production they had last season now we know Leonard likes to play a 3-3-5 he likes to be super aggressive with his blitz packages outside linebackers can line up at end constant pressure from linebackers and because Leonard played the position it seems like he gets the most out of his secondary but he was forced to hit the portal there brought in four transfers to the secondary this offseason Travion Blaylock the projected starting safety tore his ACL in spring but with a blitz rate as high as Jim Leonard's and the way he likes playing press man on the outside at times this secondary does worry me a little bit here bottom line there is going to be a drop off from this unit the key is not falling off too much and I think if some of the guys who you mentioned Nick Herbig you know Keanu Benton play like NFL guys the drop-off won't be as large Mullins and Goats take another step that'll be key Jay Shaw if he's as good as advertised then we we might not see this massive drop-off and the schedule of offenses Wisconsin face look really manageable two are in our projected top 15 Ohio State is going to be a bear to face but there's not another offense in the projected top 30 on the schedule in fact, four offenses, Wisconsin player outside our top 100, Wazoo and Iowa outside our top 75. Things look, you know, manageable here. But the only prayer uh, they have to go over their win total is if there is improvement on the offensive side of the ball, because I just I think it's impossible to not see regression based on how good that defense was last year. Now, does it drop off from like a top five unit to a top 10 unit? Then we're probably not going to see much regression here. But does it fall to like a top 25 unit? That's massive regression. And I'm just not quite sure what to expect from this unit, especially, you know, when Jim Leonard, who is that savvy, says we need four guys to bring into the secondary to have a chance to run my system or compete. It, it makes me a little nervous, even if some of those guys are pretty good that they brought in. 
Yeah, you can understand, especially for a program that loves to bring guys along in the Wisconsin way, so to speak, so they can learn the system and get integrated when they're ready and able to do some of the things that Jim Leonard will ask for him. Clearly, that group will be tested, maybe not the first three weeks, but they surely will in late September when Wisconsin goes on the road to Columbus to take on that high-powered Buckeyes offense. As far as potential threats within the Big Ten West, I honestly think this division has a ton of parity this season, and we can talk about one of our favorite teams around these parts paying that of course being the Iowa Hawkeyes who find themselves listed at 20 to 1 to win the Big Ten overall at FanDuel Sportsbook they're plus 450 to win the Big Ten West and when you look at their win total it's seven and a half shaded to the under at minus a dollar 30 and going back to 2015 Iowa has the ninth most power five victories and sits number three amongst Big Ten competitors so they have been the model of consistency but they're still seeking their first league title since 2004 and after Iowa lit the world on fire with a 6-0 start to the season they averaged a grand total of 13.2 points per game during their final six games of the regular season no greater illustration than Iowa's ineptitude than a game we gave out as a best bet with the Minnesota Golden Gophers and thank you Kirk Ferentz for electing to kick a field goal rather than punching the ball in from the three yard line with under two minutes to go and if things weren't bad enough offensively should have never been in that spot no we should never have been there but we'll get to the Minnesota Golden Gophers they'll have their day uh, and time so to speak to stand trial for some of their offensive atrocities but if things weren't bad enough for Iowa you'd normally think that Kirk Ferentz being a veteran coach would seek change along the offense and he did but he just gave his son, Brian Ferentz, more responsibility, especially as he's been upgraded to the quarterback coach on top of everything, which makes a ton of sense, Payne, when you consider that Iowa was 120th in success rate, 111th in points per drive, and 94th in Bill Connolly's S&P Plus, and you have a quarterback battle, if you even want to call it that, more like a pillow fight, between Spencer Petras and Alex Padilla fighting for reps to be the number one. The problem for the Hawkeyes is they couldn't run the ball that effectively either, 123 rushing yards per per game the worst output running the football for the Hawkeyes since 2012 I give you all of this to ask you an overarching question can Iowa's offense possibly be any worse in 2022 than what we were exposed to throughout the course of last season you've been waiting for this all of the goodwill you built in Dubuque this summer right out the window You know, Dubuque is kind of split. It's probably more Iowa Hawkeyes country, the masterpiece along the Mississippi. But you did see some Cyclones gear along those fine streets when I was there for a wedding. Thankfully, I wasn't in Iowa City because I don't have a lot of black and gold in my closet. Your buddies are Iowa fans, correct? They they hated us last year. Diehard Iowa fans. That's all I do is get inundated with text messages about how good Iowa is throughout the course of the season. So... (laughs) Analytics has caused this entanglement between coaches and betters. And so last offseason, I caught wind. Brian Ferentz reached out for help with his offense. He couldn't figure out how to incorporate it week to week. And whether that was personally or he wasn't allowed because it didn't fit the Iowa mold and culture. Either way. Looking at EPA per rush, EPA per pass, overall efficiency and explosiveness, or finishing drives inside opponent territory, Iowa's offense was outside the top 115 in each of those categories. And what makes those offensive woes even more astounding is Iowa's defense was so good, it constantly set the offense up with fantastic starting field position. The second best starting field position in college football the Hawkeyes offense had. 
But anytime a drive started inside Iowa's own 40, they only converted 12% of those drives into touchdowns. So you have an OC issue. That's tough to rectify when daddy's head coach. You have QB issues. I'll dive a little deeper there in a bit. Tyler Goodson's gone. He's with the Packers now after being responsible for 30% of the offensive yards gained last season. Iowa's O-line was outside the top 100 in line yards, opportunity rate, and stuff rate allowed. Did land a monster in the 2023 recruiting class, so good, good get there. But that translated to one of the worst productions for the Hawkeyes offense since 2012. Now, it's tough to fathom the O-line being worse than last season, but Iowa lost all-world center Tyler Linderbaum. If you include Linderbaum, the three linemen that graded out best who played at least 270 snaps last year are all gone. So you have an Iowa offense that lacks creativity, couldn't mull people in the trenches, and whether it was Petrus or Padilla under center, neither was good enough to enhance the offense in a poor environment. Petrus still has accuracy issues after four years in the program. As many turnover-worthy throws as touchdowns last season. Of the quarterbacks with at least 300 dropbacks, Petrus' adjusted accuracy was in the 7th percentile, okay? 50 percentiles average. Padilla made some splash plays, some in the Minnesota game, but he finished with two and a half times more turnover-worthy throws than touchdowns. And even when Iowa's O-line kept Padilla clean or Ferentz had him throw with play action, he wasn't good. And those are the areas where you should be decent, Padilla's best throw type, screen pass. Any throw that wasn't a screen led to a 57 passer rating, okay? Past Sam Laporte at tight end, I was relying on two sophomores and Keegan Johnson and Arlen Bruce. Keegan Johnson had a 28% drop rate on 50 targets last year, so it wasn't like, hey, he was targeted like three times and, you know, dropped, dropped a couple, right? Nico Regani is a fifth-year senior. They're relying on him. He only averaged 1.1 yards per route run last season. Iowa also lost a weapon with its All-American kicker moving on. You map out the schedule this season, and we project Iowa's offense to face nine defenses inside our top 50 in efficiency. It's hard to imagine a worse offense than last season, Dot, but this is clearly a team that's going to win games in spite of its offense. Can't wait for the rock fight in the annual Cyhawk showdown between Iowa and Iowa State, since that's when our text chain gets ratcheted up and you think that Iowa was playing for a national championship. But I can't take too many shots at some of my friends that aren't here to defend themselves. So hopefully they're listening to this podcast and I'll hear about it a little bit later on. But for all the negative that we want to talk about with Iowa and where they are offensively, Phil Parker's defense has been the one constant and it's what's allowed Iowa football to stay relevant. Plenty of continuity pain coming back on this side of the ball with eight stars returning headlined by Riley Moss all expectations and signs point to Lucas Van Ness has the makings of being the next great Iowa defensive lineman and when you look at the 2022 headline stats you're talking about a defense that surrendered less than 20 points per game created 30 turnovers 25 of which were interceptions 31 sacks as a team and 25 and a half of those sacks returned this season finished 13th nationally in scoring defense eighth in yards per rush 14th in yards per pass attempt seventh in yards per play 16th in total defense 
And when you look at what this team has done overall, since 2015, they're 117 interceptions, the most in power five on 168 takeaways, second only to Alabama. So you imagine if Iowa actually had an offense with a pulse, how good this team could be. But defensively, this is how they've built winning seasons in the past and no reason, at least for me to believe, that Iowa takes a massive step back on this side of the ball. Yeah, I mean, there's only going to be varying degrees of awesome for Iowa's defense. And you mentioned Phil Parker. He just keeps producing, and his defense is the identity of Iowa's program right now. Only one offensive opponent finished a game with a positive expected points added against Iowa last season. It was a top 10 defense in most of the vital defensive metrics. Now, turnover regression is coming after leading the nation with 25 picks and creating 30 total turnovers. That turnover luck is why Iowa ranked number two last season heading into the Purdue game. Impossible to replicate that. The entire two deep along the defensive line returns for Iowa except one man, Zach Van Volkenberg. That's a decent size loss. He graded out the best player in Iowa's defense last season. Now, his replacement is Joe Evans, a senior. Evans actually had more sacks and hits than Van Volkenberg in 337 less snaps. You mentioned Lucas Van Ness. He is expected to be the next star pass rusher at Iowa. Let's see with more snaps if that comes to fruition. Jack Campbell, Iowa's leader in the middle of the defense, returns. Riley Moss is the horse in the secondary. He's back. Jeremari Harris won the starting job late last season. He'll start opposite Moss. One serious question mark is at free safety with Dane Belton gone, drafted in the fourth round. You have a walk-on in Quinn Schultz penciled in as the starter. But here's where things get interesting because my guess is at some point, the five-star freshman and early enrollee, Xavier Wanpa, takes over the starting free safety spot. And if he's as good as advertised, there might not be as much drop-off as some would expect. The schedule of offenses are top-heavy that Iowa faces, but overall, not too daunting. Sure, you get like an elite FCS offense in South Dakota State out of the shoot. Ohio State will vie for the top offense in the country, and Michigan should be a top 20 offense, maybe even better. But outside of those three, there's not an offense on the remaining schedule that's going to keep you up at night. But because of how poor Iowa's offense is, we only have the Hawkeyes favored in seven games. Two toss-ups at Purdue and Minnesota that are winnable as well. But the market win number is very much in line with what we're projecting, Todd. And when you kind of factor in the VIG with our number, like we're at like 0.1 games off. That's how right this number is. Yeah, not a lot of wiggle room then uh, on a win total that's going to be that reflective of how you guys view the Hawkeyes coming into the season. And when you look at Iowa's schedule, first four manageable um, in the grand scheme of things, three home dates headlined by that date against Iowa State that we always see the second week of the season or so it feels like they'll go on the road for the first time to take on Rutgers. And then you look at the smattering of games that they'll play. Let's say that this is the year that the Big Ten schedule, not all that forgiving when you consider their two crossover games and to the East, you get Michigan at home and you go on the road to Ohio State. So they'll have their work cut out for them, uh, not only to eclipse that win total, but if they're to repeat as Big Ten West champions. From the Iowa Hawkeyes to arguably one of their bigger rivals, at least Nebraska fans would lead you to believe so. I'm sure Iowa looks at them like little brother. The Cornhuskers, 20-1 to to win the Big Ten and Scott Frost taking a 
pay decrease to try and go out there and prove his merits under Trev Albert's leadership. They're three to one to win the Big Ten West. And when you look at Nebraska, their win total sits at seven and a half over minus a dollar thirty. You always have to wonder how much longer Scott Frost will have to turn this program around. No winning seasons for him thus far since arriving in Lincoln, compiling a record of 15 and 29. He's lost 10 of 11 to Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota. The last league title for the Cornhuskers came back in 1999. This team did lose eight games last year by a single possession. So much is made of, hey, this team finished three and nine, but outscored their opponents. But somewhere along the way, and I know regression typically balance out pain. I have to believe when you lose one score games, you're consistently outclassed on special teams. You are who they say you are. And it's rare that we highlight a lot of special teams deficiencies. But Nebraska, 129th out of 130th in special teams efficiency index. And that was a direct indicator of why this team struggled so much in those one score games and to go winless in conference. How surprising is this for you? Very, very. I mean, we talked about it in the ACC. We, I thought Justin Fuente was going to be a good hire at Virginia Tech. I thought they made the right choice there, but recruiting fell off the table. This one, when it was talked about in terms of what direction Nebraska was going to go in, felt like an absolute slam dunk because Scott Frost was going to be able to step into an environment and revolutionize offense in the Midwest that we hadn't really seen. The thing, I guess, you know, hindsight always being 2020, maybe it's a lot more difficult to recruit to Nebraska and Lincoln now than it was in the past when Tom Osborne was competing for national titles. And you just don't always have the pieces to try and bring that level of athlete that Scott Frost probably took for granted when he was at UCF. You know this. I don't have much time in football season to do interviews, but I have a special place in my heart for Nick Baugh. And I remember going on his radio show when Frost was hired and I looked at the division landscape and I said, by the end of year two, this could be the preeminent team in the West. And by year three, he's going to be winning divisions. This is so shocking to me. I have no idea what's transpired or what's gone on. I'm at a loss for words, but we can pick this up wherever you would like. Offense, defense. Too much, just, too uh, much extracurricular activities for Scott Frost. Maybe he's just got to stay in the football <laughs> facility and try and get this program where it needs to go. But let's talk about the offense because I think this is was, a more he was, interesting group. He was group. slaying at UCF. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. The, as, as we know, Lane Kiffin was able to use that and parlay into a better opportunity. But the talent's <laughs> significantly different off the field in Orlando than what you're going to get in Lincoln, Nebraska. Not meant as a veiled cheap shot to a lot of our loyal listeners in that fine hamlet of football history. But Mark Whipple comes in from Pittsburgh to take over as the offensive coordinator. Nebraska parts ways with Adrian Martinez, who heads off to Kansas State in the transfer portal. In steps Casey Thompson from Texas to hopefully stabilize the quarterback position. We know Thompson dealt with a thumb injury last year, but still finished with over 2,100 yards and a 24-9 touchdown-to-interception ratio, leading Steve Sarkeesian's offense. His numbers under pressure at Texas, though, weren't nearly as good as what Adrian Martinez was able to produce when he was constantly under duress using his mobility to extend plays and try to make something out of nothing in my opinion pain that could be a harbinger of things to come knowing that this offensive line has a lot more questions to answer than I think known commodities we have uh, for big red going into the season ton of new faces on offense and you know Casey Thompson transfers in from Texas you have the new OC and Mark Whipple coming over from Pitt 
Whipple hires a new receivers coach, a new passing game coordinator, O-line coach, running backs coach. I'm not sure Casey Thompson's an elite thrower, but if you watch the very first pass of Nebraska's spring game, you're like, ah, Adrian Martinez could not have made that throw. I also like the way Thompson carries himself. He is a pro in his behavior, not going to turn it over as much. He does have some mobility, but not as much as Martinez. But if last season is any indication, Nebraska has to figure out how to keep Casey clean. Because if you look at his splits, they are drastic. 125 passer rating, 76% adjusted accuracy, just 1.9% turnover worthy throw weight when he was kept clean. Under pressure for a guy that mobile, Thompson was horrific. Passer rating dipped 82 points. Adjusted accuracy declined 15%. Turnover worthy throw rate increased 6%. And why that's important is what you've hinted at. Nebraska's offensive line was horrific last season. It has serious question marks heading into fall camp, along with some lingering injuries from spring. One of the best projected starters, Nordine Nuoli. Got popped for a banned substance a couple days ago. He's out for the year. Nebraska's line graded out 126 in pass blocking. Quarterbacks were pressured on more than 43% of dropbacks. Nebraska hit the transfer portal, brought in Hunter Anthony from Oklahoma State, Kevin Williams from Northern Colorado. On paper, they're Jags, just another guy, okay? Lots of hype surrounding left tackle. Turner Corcoran, the former top 50 recruit. No, he dealt with some injuries last season, but maybe I'm missing something there. He has been disappointing to date for Nebraska, graded out the very worst pass-blocking tackle in all of college football a season ago, and he was on the field for nearly 800 snaps, so not a sample size question mark in the data there. Um, Scott Frost talking up the downhill ground game this spring. Running back room is loaded. The O-line components appear better as run blockers than pass protectors. But two things are concerning. For as much as Adrian Martinez turned it over, the offense was pretty efficient last season. 51% success rate on standard downs, fringe top 20 in explosiveness. They were top five in picking up first downs on forced or second down. There were so many good things about Nebraska last season that simply did not translate to the win-loss column that I wonder, although all the change was needed for Frost to secure his job for another year. You almost are like, last year was such an anomaly. Let's kind of run that back. Since we've been tracking possession quality, Nebraska had the very best net opponent adjusted possession quality in our data history for a three-win team. So it's very possible the inverse transpires this year where Nebraska has more wins. I would bet on that. But we don't have them power rated as high. I know Nebraska swaps Ohio State and Michigan State for Indiana and Rutgers, which is nice. But in terms of the defenses that Nebraska will face, we project the 11 FBS opponents to have an average efficiency rank that's fringe top 35. So just a gauntlet of good defenses Nebraska will face this year. One thing, by the way, I want to correct myself for Nebraska fans who inevitably jumped on my throat. You guys did not go winless in the Big Ten. You did put an absolute walloping on Northwestern 56-7. to So I don't want to sell you short en route to that 3-9 and campaign that they were able to compile. 
when you look you at Nebraska yourself and you're sarcastic in the process. I yeah, like. well, I mean, every now and again, I have to hold myself accountable and I need Nebraska to go out there and prove it to me. But hey, look, I- I'm not going to say anything bad about this football team. They were ATS darlings for us. I felt like I was on them more than almost any team in the country. It was just a question of how they were going to shoot themselves in the foot to find a way to cover games as three and a half point dogs, but still lose outright only by a field goal. We look I want to at- say at some point last season, and this is going to sound nutty to a lot of people for a three-win team. I want, I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, but I want to say they flirted with like a top 20 power rating for us at one point last season. I mean, what was transpiring on the field? like, how the hell did they blow this game this week? It was every week. I mean, I know we backed them against Michigan State. That was one of the most dominating second halves of football. Or was it the first half they dominated? They no, dominated the one s- of those halves. Second half, the Michigan second State, half, right? I don't believe, had a yeah. first down. It was like, how the F did they lose this game? Yeah, and we had and we had to hold on for dear life because Michigan State had a chance to score a touchdown in overtime, and we were catching six there. So it went from, all right, we're going to hit the bonanza, be able to cash a healthy money line ticket to, holy shit, we're going to somehow find a way to lose this game ATS. Um, but, you know, alas, that was Nebraska's season in a nutshell. Now, when you look at this team defensively, the run defense is steadily improved, but it's still towards the bottom of the Big Ten and has to be a focal point if they're going to compete against physical opposition, which is the trademark of Big Ten West football. You land a TCU edge rusher and Oshwan Mathis, who has to be the crown jewel uh, of the transfer portal, not just for Nebraska, but maybe overall as far as defensive difference makers were concerned. You're talking about him potentially lining up next to a Texas Tech transfer in Devin Drew. Ty Robinson, though, the only experienced defensive tackle on the roster. When you look at this team defensively, Payne, I mean, they were good in stretches, but obviously you got to buck up and be able to stop the run if you're going to compete in the zip code. Yeah, last season's defense was was veteran laden. So, you know, you start this season outside the top 100 in returning defensive production. It was a top 30 defense in schedule adjusted efficiency. I think FEI had the Huskers 15th. Wow. Uh, that's extremely impressive when you think about two things. Below average in defensive field position, so opposing offenses started with good field position against Nebraska's defense, and Nebraska's defense spent the 24th most time on the field because of turnovers and the offense's inability to convert on third and fourth down. Nebraska's defense also didn't break. It would bend, but top 10 in finishing drive defense only allowed three points per trip inside the 40-yard line. Looking at the parts heading into fall camp, Garrett Nelson has a huge motor. You mentioned Nebraska hitting the transfer portal lotto with O'Shawn Mathis beating out Texas for his services. Devin Drew, as you mentioned, transfers in from Texas Tech along the D-line, as well as uh, Stephon Wynn from Bama, former top 100 player. You have the two veterans in Ty Robinson and Colton Feist. Linebacker group looks like a strength. The two questions on paper is Nebraska's ability to stop the run in the secondary. Transfer portal was apparently the solution for the secondary. Three guys transfer in. You have four-star corner Tommy Hill from ASU, Omar Brown from UNI, a high three-star kid, and Kane Williams, a safety from Alabama. That unit is wait and see for me. I'll be watching fall camp closely. There are some real positives for Nebraska's defense. The first is you don't see Ohio State or Maryland's offenses. Michigan is the only offense we project inside the top 20 in efficiency that Nebraska plays. The 10 other FBS offenses we project to have an average efficiency rank of 76th, and then you get an FCS opponent after the opening week trip to Ireland uh, to face Northwestern. Second thing here, Nebraska lost eight games by one possession last season because they couldn't do the little things well, and you hinted at some of these things. 
most of those errors you hope to improve with Adrian Martinez moving on. So I would expect less time spent on the field for the defense. Special teams, as you alluded to, was a disaster, and that has a correlation to defense. We had Nebraska 127th in special teams efficiency. So Scott Frost realized the problem, finally, hit the reset button, brought in a new transfer kicker, new transfer punter, new punt and kickoff returner in Trey Palmer. Brian Buschini was named FCS punter of the year. Frost also hired a dedicated special teams coordinator. So if Nebraska's defense isn't on the field as much, and when they are on the field, opponents don't start with elite field position because the punt game is strong and the return game is better, maybe those two things, along with schedule help, lessen the defensive aggression we ultimately see here, Todd. Have to make a call for Nebraska's opener. See if uh, John Sheeran has some eyeballs on the ground in Dublin to know what kind of shenanigans Nebraska may or may not get into for that trip overseas in the Shamrock Classic or whatever the hell they're calling it against Northwestern. But for the second year in a row, Nebraska goes into a week one conference game, uh, albeit in a slightly different environment as a double digit favorite. I'm sure Cornhusker fans can only hope that this one works out a little bit better than what we saw last year in week zero against the fighting Illini. From Nebraska football to Minnesota. We'll get there in a second. I should have done this earlier. I want to remind all of you, our loyal listeners, you can follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You, of course, can follow me there as well. Most importantly, follow the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. A busy season or off season, I should say, a preview podcast coming your way, not just for the Power Five conferences, but all eight divisions in the National Football League. And we've also had another addition to the Bet the Board catalog. We're delving into a little bit of NASCAR. Payne gets those Wednesdays off when we record, but trying to find other unique ways to attack the betting markets and make you some money. So encourage folks who haven't tuned in to an episode of Stay Green yet to try and do so and find a different sport that they can attack with the typical Bet the Board best bet and plenty of closing line value to be found in a lot of those betting markets. Minnesota Golden Gophers paying 30 to 1 long shots to win the Big Ten this season at FanDuel Sportsbook. 6 to 1 to win the Big Ten West. And you look at PJ Flex Bunch, 7.5 is their win total. You do have to lay $1.15 to go over. And Goldie continues to chase its first league title since 1967. 20 wins as a program, though, the last two years as P.J. Fleck continues to build continuity. Nine wins last year was only the fourth time since 1905 they'd achieved such a mark, but when you start to set the bar a lot higher for yourself, a lot of folks around that program said nine wins was a little bit disappointed, and the main reason they weren't able to achieve higher goals, the offense struggled And that's probably not even a strong enough statement. Points per game were down by more than 30% over the year prior. Kirk Soroka returns flex offensive coordinator at Western Michigan and Minnesota after Sanford was fired. We know he's got relationships with key personnel since he recruited a lot of these guys to Western Michigan before PJ moved up to the Twin Cities. But your guy Tanner Morgan, Payne, he's got to be better if this offense is going to get on track. Thankfully, he's got a running back he can lean on in Mohamed Ibrahim, who hopefully returns at 100% from his torn Achilles, suffered last year week one against Ohio State and more importantly for Minnesota they have a wide receiver that projects as a fringe first round second round pick and Chris Ottman Bell no surprise to the loyal listeners that bet the board that offensive coordinator Mike Sanford Jr. was fired terrible hire by PJ Fleck did rectify that mistake brought back Kirk Soroka things are going to look different but this isn't your normal transition with the new OC because a lot of the players know Soroka's offense. They know his personality. 
lots of talk about simplifying the passing attack. What we know for sure, more balls are going to be in the air this year, right? Last year, Minnesota was number one in college football in run rate over expectation. Only Army, Navy, and Air Force passed less than Minnesota. Absolutely embarrassing for a Power 5 program with an experienced fifth-year quarterback to pass that little. That is going to change, and it needs to. I know Minnesota's O-line and weapons were better, but in 2019, Soroka's last year at Minnesota, the Gophers finished seventh in schedule-adjusted offensive efficiency. Last year's iteration under the horrific Mike Sanford Jr. was fringe top 65. Tanner Morgan did not look comfortable, and the proof is really in the pudding metrically. If you look at Tanner Morgan back in 2019 with Kirk Soroka as OC versus Tanner Morgan in 2021 with Mike Sanford Jr., Tanner Morgan's passer rating was 38 points higher in 2019. Adjusted accuracy, 7% better. 4.3 touchdown-interception ratio in 19 compared to a 1-1 in 2021. Now, I know some of the receivers aren't aren't there, but that drop-off can only be explained by a horrific offensive coordinator. Tanner Morgan was simply a different quarterback, and I think, you know, super senior season six, we're going to see some of that that 2019 form from Morgan. I think the biggest question mark for Minnesota's offense is is up front. You have to replace both starting tackles and both starting guards. Only Schmitz, the all-conference center, is back. You have Chuck Falega transferring in from Michigan. He's serviceable. Average to below average in 700 snaps for the Wolverines over four seasons. You have Quinn Carroll, the former four-star lineman from Notre Dame, also transferring in. Only 52 total snaps for the Irish. Carroll wasn't in for spring, but projected to vie for the starting tackle spot. You have Ursary, who's been solid during spring and should win the other tackle spot. Lots of unknowns, and there's some level of concern internally about four new guys, all with question marks in one shape or another up front. So that's something to to monitor here. Minnesota also lost its de facto sixth lineman and tight end, Co-Keeft. Um, he was elite when you look at his blocking ability from the tight end position. But, you know, kind of to paint a picture how good last year's Gophers offensive line was, they faced one of the highest rates of loaded boxes in college football, yet less than 13% of runs were stuffed. That was a top 15 rate in all of college football. So that probably going to regress a little bit in the ground game, but I do think the imagination of, of Soroka and the ability to throw it a little bit more is going to help this offense. Yeah, As pretty – you know more passing here right i think you're gonna see a lot more you know quick short passes um to help this offensive line with question marks and they're going to be able to perform i think in not so obvious situations if you kind of look at some of these numbers for morgan the release time in 2019 was quicker than 2021 so i would expect you know more of the rpo game when it is pass lots of 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 quick slants and outs that are in that short to intermediate window but the the route tree i think allows for some of these deep shots when defenders eventually get caught cheating and squatting i I think that is what we're going to see here like the o-line is certainly not nearly as good but you are going to have a lot of progression here and the way the schedule unfolds 
Minnesota can kind of work on getting the old, better working offensive concepts integrated the first three weeks against, you know, defenses we project all outside the top 75 in efficiency, right? It's New Mexico State, it's Western Illinois, it's Colorado. Now, Minnesota better get its shit together because after that, the final nine games only feature one defense we project outside the top 50. Average rank of our projected defenses in that final nine game stretch for Minnesota. 28th so a gauntlet there but you do have the at least the ability to get shit reacclimated the first three weeks yes the jerry kill game to kick things off when they welcome in new mexico state week one but just to kind of further contextualize some of the run heavy tendencies that we saw from minnesota last year pain minnesota ran the ball more than 46 times per game that was more often than any other power five team it attempted just 257 passes fewer than every fbs non-service academy program last year the gophers called design running plays 64 percent of their snaps according to pro football focus the highest figure by a power five team not just last year but over the last three seasons the fbs average hovers close to 48 percent. and if there's one thing our listeners have learned from you listening to this podcast and listening to our nfl version as well passing is much more efficient and translates to a higher rate of victory than running the football does so some balance would behoove minnesota to try and keep opposing offense defenses off balance defensively joe rossi at the helm transfers are going to be required to fill a lot of key voids along the defensive line in the secondary when you look at this minnesota team they lose six of eight key contributors on the defensive line there are some difference makers in the fold but in my opinion more questions than answers for defense that was largely unheralded last year finishing third nationally in total defense holding opponents well under 280 yards per game sixth in scoring defense a lot of that though attributed to the fact that minnesota just wasn't on the field all that much because their offense was so hellbound done running the football yep exactly I, I do love the gophers dc joe rossi if you are an avid listener to the pod we were all for the firing of rob smith in 2018 we actually outlined how much better joe rossi was heading into the 2019 season on our big 10 preview and if you just kind of look at his resume going back to 18 the first nine games minnesota was given up 6.2 yards per play pj fleck then fires rob smith after Illinois hung 55, promotes Joe Rossi to D.C. for the final four games of the season. The Gophers only get 4.9 yards per play, and in those games, the opposing offenses were much better. Um, I just think this is a guy who's destined for bigger. So you follow up last season with another big year, and he might not be in Minnesota. I think when I look at this, I would expect some level of regression this season. You mentioned replacing six of the top eight defenders in production. Minnesota lost both defensive ends in Mafe and Otumawa. One of, you know, was a top 40 pick. The other was taken in round five. Nearly a thousand snaps between them last season and and the top two graded players from the entire defense. You have Thomas Rush. You have Trill Carter. They returned, but Minnesota had to hit the transfer portal three times for D-line help. Leading tackler, Jack Gibbons, is gone. He was also a plus cover linebacker to boot. All told, Minnesota's defense hovers around 100th in returning production. I think deep tackle is a massive concern. That group's comprised of a transfer that couldn't cut the mustard at Clemson, a couple upperclassmen that weren't good enough to contribute much last season, and young guys that are unproven. Tons of production loss from an area of strength last year. So that's concerning to me. If you look at Minnesota, they were 12th in opportunity rate allowed. That's basically, again, the percentage of carries that gain at least four yards when four yards are available. So did a great job shutting off the ground game. Minnesota's defense was also fantastic, forcing teams to go three and out 
top 10 negating opponents having a quality possession. And I think when you look at some of the things this season, one of the biggest keys, they do catch a break. Schedule is just so important with this much imbalance. The Gophers won't face an offense we project inside the top 30 in offense efficiency all season. Only three offenses in the top 50. The eight other FBS schools Minnesota faces have a projected offensive efficiency rank of 90th, plus you get FCS Western Illinois on the schedule who won two games a season ago. So to the casual fan, it might not appear like a massive drop-off defensively for Minnesota, but with schedule-adjusted metrics, I think betters are certainly going to be able to tell. And this was just a weird team, right? For, for kind of full disclosure here, Todd, Will Hill opened Minnesota six and a half it did attract sharp over money. However, as we sit here and talk about it, you know, Thursday morning, it's at seven and a half. I think the sentiment is is completely different there. Yeah, so, so many of these teams in the Big Ten West, I mean, they don't check all the boxes. And while I know Wisconsin appears at least on paper to be the runaway favorite as the only team at FanDuel right now at under two to one to win the division, you could make a case, in my opinion, I think we have, for a couple of things going right for the Wisconsins, the Minnesotas, the Iowas, the Nebraskas of the Big Ten West, and all having a legitimate shot to represent that half of the draw in the Indianapolis playing against most likely Ohio State for a conference championship. But the one team that I think does have some potential as well that we haven't discussed, and it'll be the last team that we deep dive here, the Purdue Boilermakers. They're 40-1 to to win the Big Ten at FanDuel Sportsbook, 6-1 to to come out of the Big Ten West, and their win total 7.5 under minus $1.35. And Payne, when I look at Purdue, I think the overarching and the most simplistic way to look at this is me asking you, are the Boilers a program that can lose their best offensive talent in David Bell, best defensive player in George Karloftis, an elite defensive coordinator in Brad Lambert, and yet somehow have bigger expectations coming into this season than what we saw last year, given some of the momentum that they generated with their big and somewhat improbable victory against Tennessee in that Music City Bowl? I'm in conflict. I know that's a cop-out, but I'm not quite sure what's going on with Purdue. One of the tougher teams for me to gauge in this conference. I can see why. Over seven at plus money got hit, and that's why we're now at seven and a half. It's it's basically predicated on schedule. Ohio State, Michigan State, Notre Dame, not on the schedule this season. Purdue's non-con is Indiana State and FAU. The biggest brands on the schedule are Penn State and Wisconsin. Both... If you had to flip a coin, maybe you're down from pass iterations. And then Aiden O'Connell decides to come back for a super senior sixth season. So that's nice. And for a pocket passer at a middling Big Ten program, I think he's all you can ask for. Finally won the starting job last season in game four against Minnesota. Looked solid there. From that point forward in the regular season, O'Connell never had a game where he completed less than 74% of his passes. So he's extremely accurate. The interesting part about that is you would think that kind of completion percentage comes with dinking and dunking that wasn't the case 8.6 yards per pass attempt for O'Connell that was the highest in the Brom era at Purdue O'Connell is willing to push it downfield and ultimately that's why he took Plummer's job last season and when AOC would push it deep he had a big time throw rate of 42 percent and a 123 passer rating internally Purdue feels good about its weapons. For me, it's wait and see. Milton Wright, Purdue's projected number one receiver, became academically ineligible in May. 
big blow knowing David Bell was drafted top 100 and Jackson Anthrope graduated. That trio produced 51% of produced total targets and 59% of receptions. All gone. Plus, you're breaking in a new wide receiver coach. My namesake, Payne Durham at tight end, (laughs) made a monster leap last season. I would expect him to make another leap. He's versatile enough to line up in the slot. You have the Iowa transfer, Tyrone Tracy. He's been all the Raven camp, end rounds, gadget runs. He'll dabble in the slot. Would expect him to fill the Anthrope role. The last time we saw Brock Thompson, he was dominating Tennessee in the bowl game. Let's see how long it takes for him to get back into form after having surgery on both knees. TJ Sheffield, Rice, Yassine, they have to make some leaps. There are pieces here, but they just need a horse or two to develop. Left side of Purdue's offensive line is intact along with the center. Purdue's right side is a question mark, and there's no depth, okay? Brahms' offense is a passing offense, so the line is always better in protection than it is in run blocking, it would seem. Purdue is outside the top 150 in line yards, opportunity rate and stuff right allowed. Add that O-line play all up, along with question marks at running back, and you have a Purdue team that finished 129th in EPA per rush. Kobe Lewis from CMU just transferred in on June 13th to help that situation. There has been added emphasis on running the ball this season for Brahm. But if the receiver situation doesn't figure itself out, maybe we see more two tight end sets and a touch more running. What concerns me, and it's something, again, you mentioned in the last team we broke down, in in 2022 when passing correlates to winning, and you lose substantial wide receiver production, and you can't run efficiently, that makes me a little nervous. I know it's the spring game. But when you have a six-year senior at QB and you start the game with six straight incompletions and score zero points in the first half with Purdue missing six defense, uh, eight defensive backs, eh, not good. And, and, and no doubt from a power rating perspective, the schedule isn't daunting. But specific to Purdue offensively, the average projected defensive efficiency rank of the 11 FPS opponents Purdue's offense will face, 40th. We're projecting four top 20 defenses. Only three defenses on the schedule projected outside our top 60. So this, for me, is a really tricky team to gauge. And really, as much as we respect Brom Todd, he's only had one good season at Purdue. Yeah, it's been pretty uneven. Uh, when you look at the way he burst onto the scene, he had that big highlight victory of sorts when they knock off Ohio State in dominant fashion, winning outright as a double-digit favorite. Then they kind of fall on hard times, and last year was able to galvanize the troops and get them going in the right direction. But to your point, tough to replace the production of a David Bell or a Milton Wright. They're going to need the most out of Brock Thompson and Tyrone Tracy as early as week one when they welcome in Penn State defensively kind of mentioned at the top Brad Lambert bolts for Wake Forest we highlighted that how great a hire it was um, for what the Demon Deacons were going to do and how they were going to trend in the right direction Ron English and Mark Hagan co-defensive coordinators here there's a ton of depth along the defensive line I'm not sure they have a player as good as George Karloftis linebacking group at least on paper appears more than formidable and when you look at the secondary sure there are some players there to be excited about but Purdue last year, an uncharacteristically good defensive season. Do we think they can continue to build on some of that momentum, especially if the offense experienced growing pains early on? All of the talk is Purdue's defense is going to lead the way again and should be one of the Big Ten's best. I'm not going to argue that. But it is at least worth a discuss and mentioning regression. Right, if you just look at Jeff Brom, we know he's an offensive-minded coach. And you look at the four years under Brom where Purdue's defense is ranked in schedule-adjusted efficiency, it's 88th. 
82nd, 60th, and then last year, 25th. It's like spot the anomaly, spot the result, many deviations past the norm. And the guys responsible for coordinating that top 25 defense, we discussed on the ACC preview. Brad Lambert and James Adam both have moved on to Wake Forest. Lambert was only at Purdue one year. That was the year the anomaly happened. In the process, you lose George Karloftis, and his success in the NFL isn't really relevant here, but we know Purdue doesn't land many top 50 players beating out Ohio State, right? So that, to me, is a a significant loss. Purdue just doesn't send many first-round defensive ends to the NFL. Karloftis was responsible for 27% of Purdue's pressures and 29% of their quarterback hurries. Among all defensive ends in the country on the field for at least 300 pass rush snaps, Karloftis graded out fifth. Demarcus Mitchell and Jalen Alexander are also gone. Those two gentlemen graded out to have produced top five players defensively. So eight guys return, but three of the top horses are all gone. Looking at team metrics, that would suggest regression as well. Purdue's defense wasn't great on first and second down last year, outside the top 100, actually. Opponents also had a quality possession on nearly 60% of drives. Those typically are going to kind of fall to the norm in terms of points produced when those two things happen, right? When offenses are really good on first and second down and they're having quality possessions, it probably means the point total that Purdue allowed last season was a little bit of a mirage, okay? I completely understand the thought process, though. And back to kind of what I said at the top, it comes down to schedule. Purdue's defense projects to face one one offense in the top 30 that's maryland the other 10 power five offenses have a projected offensive efficiency rank of 73rd plus indiana state is on the schedule if purdue can pull off the opening week upset hosting penn state and they're about a three three and a half point dog i did mention you know plus four and a half got hit there is a serious path to a four and oh start here but the reason i didn't join my guys on on purdue's over at basically like 6.8 when you factor in the juice even in a home run 2021 season where the Boilers upset Iowa and Michigan State, they won eight regular season games. It was a good Purdue team, but the prior four seasons, Brom won a total of 18 regular season games. In year three and four, when coaches are expected to make the leap since it's their team at that point, six total regular season wins over those two seasons. I'd rather make Purdue prove to me that they can win games against softer schedule than than tie up my money for seven months even in this current economy and market landscape it's kind of the inverse of the mindset we've had where we have more college football future bets than we've ever had before based upon the current dynamics of what's going on in this country Hey, you take advantage of uh, what the markets will offer up, and sometimes there's uncertainty that doesn't warrant betting into season win totals. Your projections can change after just an addition of another data point. And I think for two teams in the Big Ten, when we see Purdue and Penn State do battle week one, we're going to learn a lot more about what those two teams can have for realistic expectations. Penn State, obviously an uphill battle in the Big Ten East, trying to dethrone Michigan and Ohio State for pecking order there. But Purdue, with a win, could put themselves in a little bit of the catbird seat as they set their sights on trying to win the Big Ten West and go after favorite Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, and of course, Nebraska. Nine teams, I think, by by my count, that we've broken down as extensively as we know how uh, around these parts, Payne. But of course, there are the other teams uh, that we've talked about or haven't talked about, I should say. And I feel there's one that stood out to me uh, in one regard, and you talked about it. You, You danced 
around how good this team is going to be, at least on one side of the ball. And that would be the Maryland Terrapins. So when you look at Maryland and where their win total is set at five and a half at FanDuel, I mean, they haven't won more than three conference games since 2014. Dan Enos, uh, we can say what we want about him as a head coach. He's had multiple stops along the way, but Baby Tua set nearly every offensive record last year. His receivers and O-line are deeper and more proven this season. I mean, this is a Terps team that lit the world on fire and then rubber met the road against Iowa and they pissed down their leg in Friday Night Football where Tua went from being a dark horse Heisman contender to being completely out of the race and essentially a half of football. You look at what this team brings back for pass catchers, Rakeem Jarrett and Dante Demas. I mean, you bring in another player returning from injury in Jay Sean Jones. Jacob Copeland comes in from Florida and there's truly a wealth of riches for this team offensively. But for all the positives that I want to say about Maryland offensively, defensively, I mean, this team, Mike Loxley really has to raise the overall profile. Fourth defensive coordinator in four years and Brian Williams. And we say it time and time again, if you're just average on that side of the ball, Maryland has an excellent chance, despite playing in the Big Ten East, to get bowl eligible and spring an upset or two. Uh, But this, for me, is probably the most intriguing team in the league outside of the nine heavy hitters that we broke down quite extensively. And there's been a little battle here on this. Initially, some guys bet over five and a half small. That was at minus 150 out west and then all of a sudden once the offshore market opened there really hasn't been that same sentiment and we're sitting here still at at five and a half so to your point very good offense with two are returning with some great weapons and we're projecting maryland's offense to be in the top 20 defensively though projecting outside the top 80 and we mentioned in the penn state preview you lost your horse defensive end chop robinson So things are not going well there. Of the other teams, Illinois, Northwestern, Rutgers, don't really need to get into them too in depth. We, their win totals are pretty on the mark. And I know our our buddy Ryan, who is a Northwestern fan, we joked around with him a little bit yesterday. Northwestern did open four and a half wins, uh, project them a little bit lower. That's why we're down to four now. But aside from that, there's not much cooking with Illinois and Rutgers, and we try to just talk about the best teams, although Maryland does have a little bit of intrigue, so it was worth discussing a little bit there before we get to the best bet. Yeah, and Greg Schiano, to his credit, uh, trying to raise the profile of Rutgers. Obviously, much tougher to do in a second stint when you're in the Big Ten compared to the Big East and you're competing against the South Floridas of the world. Illinois... Took the money, baby. Took the money. He he did. (laughs) Illinois last year surprised a lot of folks coming up one win shy of bowl eligibility in Brett Bielema's first season, but there's a ton of turnover on that fighting Illini roster. It'll be interesting to watch and how they're priced. You know, two wins against top 20 opponents the first time they've done that. I don't know how long. Uh, And to your point, talking about Northwest or not a lot of reason for optimism when you look at this team offensively that's pretty much been outside the top 90 every year in that regard since 2017 and last year hit rock bottom 130th in goal to go touchdown rate which isn't good when you're not inside uh, the 10 yard line all that often but All right, my friend, that's a a lot of damage we've done for the Big Ten. Uh, I do want to remind all of our loyal listeners 
Uh, your no sweat first bet available at FanDuel up to $1,000 back in $1,000 back in free bets. Use the promo code bet the board. Take advantage of that, whether you're using it for part of your football bankroll or you want to try and build that bankroll long before toe meets leather in early August with a Hall of Fame game and a bunch of college opportunities. FanDuel has you covered and should be the premier sports book in your sports betting tool belt. But as is always tradition around these parts, before we get out of Dodge, there is one final order of business to transact, and one team that we haven't mentioned in any capacity on this fine podcast. So pain our listeners, if they've been paying attention from start to finish, might have a slight inkling of where you're going as far as a best bet on this team. Now, which direction you choose to go, that remains anybody's best guess. Who's your daddy? Indiana Hoosiers. Under four and a half wins, minus $1.35 at FanDuel, as Todd alluded to, some great promotions going on over there. The link is always in the podcast description for ease. Also, let's just here talk about the number before we get into Indiana. There was someone in the mentions that said, I didn't bet Pittsburgh under nine and a half minus 40 because it was too much juice. Maybe someone that's used to seeing minus 110 on Saturdays or Sundays or whenever football games are played, but that is not an anomaly when you come to betting win totals. Um, So with this one, (laughs) under 4.5 minus 35 at FanDuel would hop on that now. We kind of project them at 3.4 wins. There hasn't been bigger Hoosier football fans that don't come from affiliated team sites than us. And I think we saw that program shift in 2018, even though they weren't quite there yet. And we were the first to pound the table with Indiana being a relative player in 2019. They went 14 and seven the next two seasons. Last year, we called for regression. We got it. We've been really honed in on on Indiana. And now I'm calling for an absolute dropout and a rebuild here. The Hoosiers are not a program that reload. They're losing their DC and top defensive assistant, and that unit has been responsible for the upswing in recent years. Defensively, it's been about scheme for Indiana. They haven't created much pressure from their line because they don't recruit that position well compared to Big Ten standards. Hoosiers lose their leading tackler in the middle of the defense. Offensively, new quarterback, new OC, very little to speak of at receiver. Own line hasn't been able to create push in the ground game for multiple seasons now. Indiana does not recruit that position well relative to Big Ten standards either. So you look last year outside the top 110 in both line yards created and opportunity rate. I'm also not a Connor Basilic guy. He'll be the man under center. Weak arm, lots of short to intermediate throws. Because the arm strength is lacking, the intermediate passes are an adventure. And the one glaring thing Connor Basilic struggles with is pressure. For three seasons, he's been terrible when pressured and you have an Indian offensive line that allowed a 41% pressure rate on Michael Penix in 2020 despite a two and a half second release time in 2021 between Penix McCulley Tuttle the three quarterbacks that spent the most time under center that trio was pressured on more than 38% of dropbacks when you have to play four quarterbacks more than 65 snaps in a season it's because they're getting killed back there okay so I don't think that's going to bode well for Basilak again under four and a half wins minus 35 at FanDuel right now we have Indiana pegged for about 3.4 wins, so too much of an edge to pass up. Oh, it kills me to go against our boy Tom Allen, but like you said, when you're consistently competing against the Blue Bloods every now and again, it's tough to try and sell that football program. We'll see how they bottom out this year. Don't know if they'll be as bad as last year, but if they get to three wins, it allows us to cash this under ticket with relative ease. 
All right, my friend. Got to be honest. I'm okay with them getting to four. <laughs> two two preseason podcasts in the books. We broke it down the ACC. If folks haven't listened to that, go back and do so. The nice part about all of these preseason podcasts, we do them well enough in advance so you can listen to one team here and there. Of course, listen to the best bet section. Take advantage of the numbers. As you know, once the bet the board audience floods the market, these prices will not be available if you're going to wait till the week of the start of the season to try and listen through all of these. And the reason we give them out at those numbers is to give you the best opportunity that's widely available. Any final uh, words of wisdom, parting shots, things you'd like to get off your chest before we uh, take a seven-day sabbatical and come back ready to roll with the Big 12? Back on July 13th with the Big 12. See you then. All right. For all of you, our loyal listeners, thanks as always for tuning in. Appreciate your continued support. Go to Apple Podcasts, five-star rate, review, subscribe. Use your promo code BETTHEBOARD at FanDuel. Take advantage of everything there and tune into our NASCAR podcast. Stay green as well. Come hopefully the middle of October. Well, let's be generous. The early November uh, with an Indiana win totals ticket under the total. We'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex.com.